We all have those moments in our lives, like my friend Paige that you just heard, when we pass through the Shadowlands. And sometimes it doesn't feel like you're passing through, it feels like you're stuck in the Shadowlands. And the Shadowlands are those places in our lives where fear and discouragement tend to encroach like shades over our faith and over our hope. You know, Jesus experienced the Shadowlands. In fact, Jesus died in darkness. But the good news is we know, and we'll celebrate this weekend, that he also conquered the darkness. He rose to victory. And that's why this message is so important for us. Because in this message, what we discover is that our darkness, our Shadowlands, are truly temporary. God has delivered us from eternal darkness, and he's even with us in those moments of darkness that we face in this life. So let's join Jesus. Turn open to Luke chapter 22, if you will. Those of you who are joining us online, I encourage you to follow along your Bibles as well. Luke 22, or turn open if you have the electronic version. By the way, how many of you have an electronic Bible? Let me see your hands. Wow, look at that. Awesome. How many of you have the old-fashioned paper Bible with you? How many of you have both? You just are ready. All right, that's beautiful. That gave you time to get there, didn't it? Jesus had just celebrated Passover with his followers. And it was late at night. They had a heavy meal. And he leads them out of the upper room. And they go down and across the Kidron Valley and up the slope of the Mount of Olives and into the Garden of Gethsemane. And there Jesus left behind the 12. And he said to them, he warned them, I want you to pray so you don't enter into temptation. Then it says that Jesus went about a stone's throw away and he sunk to his knees in agony and prayer. And after a while, he got up off his knees and he made his way back to where the 12 were with the expectation that they would be praying, but they were doing anything but praying. They were, they were sleeping. Heavy meal, late at night, lots of stress, lots of fears, confusion. They were asleep. And Jesus awakens them, and while he's confronting them about this, a mob appears. A mob consisting of priests and elders of the people and temple guards. They've come to arrest Jesus, and they're being led by Judas, one of Jesus' own twelve. And Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, and Jesus is taken to the high priest's compound, and Peter kind of trails off behind and follows along to see what's about to happen. And there, near the fire, early, early, early in the morning hours, someone recognizes Peter. In fact, several recognize Peter, and they call him out. Ah, you're one of the followers, aren't you? And Peter denies it once, twice, three times, and then the rooster crows, and Peter remembers Jesus said this would happen. And Peter also remembers that he had boasted that even if Jesus had to die, he would die with him. Jesus looked at Peter, and Peter went out and says he wept bitterly. And Jesus is left completely alone in the shadows, in the darkness. Look what it says in verse 63. It says that the soldiers mock him, 
says the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. Why? Why do they do that? I think there's several reasons why, but one of them is they don't believe who he claims to be. That's why when they blindfold him, they hit him, slap him, beat him with their fist. And they say, okay, prophet, tell us, who just did that to you if you are who you claim to be? Now, if they've been paying attention, earlier in Luke chapter 18, Jesus actually prophesied that these kinds of things were going to happen to him. But even if, even if they had heard that and remembered it, they still would not have believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And here's the reason why, and it makes sense from a human perspective. I mean, if you're God, you're not going to let people push you around. If you're God, you're not going to let this happen to you. I mean, the Romans looked at Jesus and saw him as kind of a joke. A peasant from Nazareth. Poor prophet, priest, king, come on. I mean, they knew what Caesar was like. Jesus is nothing like that. That's why on the cross they said, you know, why doesn't he call down, you know, the armies of heaven to rescue him? In their preconceived notions, he was not God. He couldn't be God. And I think even the disciples struggle with that as well. I think they lost faith there on Calvary's hill. Jesus being crucified because in their mind Messiah would never let something like this happen to him that's why and we'll talk about it this next weekend when Jesus shows up in his resurrected body presents himself to them they still can't believe because they just can't get it through their heads that that God would die so to speak but what they don't understand and we probably don't really understand either is the gravity of sin that sin demands that the Son of God die. That if Jesus rescues himself, he condemns all the rest of us. He is the only means, the only hope of salvation. The law doesn't work, and all those sacrifices in the Old Testament, the time that Jesus come, are only a cover-up. Only a, a stay of execution, so to speak. Till the ultimate sacrifice comes. So the soldiers mock him, Jews mock him, His disciples, in a sense, mock him, and you and I, we mock him too. See what I mean, we mock him. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a moment in your life, because I have, okay? More than just one, by the way. Where something's happened to you, maybe in your friendships at school, maybe in your marriage, maybe at work, maybe in your body, maybe it's a loss, maybe it's finances, maybe it's something you observe in the world and you just said something like this to God or you pray something like this to God or you said it to somebody else, I don't really know if God exists. Because if God is who he says he is, I can't believe he's allowing that to happen to me or to them or to us. Now I don't know about you, but I have thought and prayed and said those kinds of things. How about you? That's a form of mockery, isn't it? It's a form of saying, you know, God, I really don't know if if you're living up to what I conceive and perceive you should be, if indeed you are God. But that's because we're oftentimes stuck in the middle. 
That is, we're in the middle of suffering, we're in the middle of the shadows, and we can't see the end. And when you can't see the end, and you're in the shadows long enough, you begin to doubt. You begin to get scared. You begin to question God. I mean, Jesus himself is stuck in the middle, so if you, in the middle, if you think about it. I mean, he's facing the cross. He's got to go through the cross to get to the resurrection, but he's got to have faith in the Father that he'll be raised from the dead. Hard place to be. In a sense, we have to do the same. We're kind of stuck in the middle. But we have to have faith that in the end, whatever is going on in our life right there is all going to work towards something good. And I may not understand it to the consummation of history. I may not know to the end of the world that everything's done and said, the book of Revelation, finished. Then I may understand why these things happen. But boy, when you're in the middle, it is hard to wait to the end. And to trust God in the shadows. When I fly, one of the things I enjoy is when you take off on a cloudy day, this heavy bank of clouds, and that plane takes off. And I love that moment <clears throat> when the cloud breaks, when the plane breaks through the clouds. If you're sitting in the right place, you know, at the right angle, you see the sun, just brilliant, shining. You see that beautiful blue sky, and you're reminded, oh, the sun is still shining, the sky is still blue, even though my lives have been, you know, covered by, by dark gray. And if you live in Minnesota in the wintertime, you know, that can, that can go on for weeks, right? And the longer there are clouds in the sky, the more you begin to question, does the sun still shine, is it still blue up there? And when I break through the clouds in that plane and I see that sun and I see the blue sky, I'm reminded that the clouds affect me. They affect my mood. They affect what's going on down here on, on earth, so to speak. But the clouds do not affect the sun. The clouds do not affect the blue sky. It is always shining. The sky is always blue. If it's at night, the stars are always twinkling. It's always there. Same is true in our lives. Even when we go through the shadows, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because you are there. You're not only there, you're with me. You're with me. But Judas couldn't wrap his mind around it. Somewhere along the line, Judas just gave up on Jesus. And, you know, scholars have talked for centuries about why does Judas betray Jesus? What was going on? And some say, well, the reason he did that, he was trying to force the hand of Jesus. He was trying to force Jesus to be the Messiah, to act by putting him in a threatening situation. Maybe so, maybe not. But look at the passage of Scripture with me and see what happens to Judas, beginning in verse 47. It says, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up. The man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Over in Psalm 55, David talks about the pain of betrayal. In verse 12, because he experienced it, he said, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshipers. If a stranger betrays you, that's one thing. If a casual acquaintance or an enemy betrays you, you can deal with it. But when it's your spouse, when it's your child, when it's your father, your mother, when it's your best friend, when it's your business partner that betrays you, it's almost unrecoverable, isn't it? 
a terrible experience to have. And so Judas betrays Jesus. Judas who spent three or three and a half years of his life with Jesus gives him the kiss of death, so to speak. Let me ask you a question. What do you think of Judas? What do you students think of Judas? Do you think like he's the worst sinner who ever walked the earth? Because there's a sense when I think about Judas that I think of him that way. But in another sense, I'm going to say something you don't like. You're not going to like what I'm about to say. Which is always a great way to preempt what you're going to say. Because now you're in a defensive mode. All of us have a little bit of Judas in us. I told you you didn't like it. Now we want to believe that the people next to us, in front of us, behind us have a little bit of Judas in them. But moi? No. Not me. But we do. You remember that scene in about verse 22 or verse 23 of chapter 22 of Luke? Jesus says, the one who's about to betray me, his hands are at the table with me. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'd been at the table that night, I would have done one of these really quick. And, and the disciples respond in that passage, I think it's like verse 22 or verse 23, they respond and they look around at each other and they wonder who it is. Is it me? Is it you? Now, if Judas, as we characterize him, because we know the whole story, is as bad as we make him out to be, and I agree, he was bad, right? You would expect the disciples to go, oh, I know he's talking about Judas. Always that. He had shifty eyes. Kind of lags behind. Never really involved with the rest of us. You notice that about him? I, yep, that's what I thought. They don't say that at all. Judas is just like the rest of them. Sin is insidious. Look at that passage again because, you know, it says that he approached Jesus to kiss him. What's that whole kissing thing about? Well, Moses Aberbach, who is a, a Jewish scholar, reminds us that in the old days, you know, in ancient times when when a Pharisee or a teacher had their disciples, which was pretty common, you had the teacher and their disciples, that oftentimes when they would meet together, they would kiss in the Middle Eastern sense. And I, every time I go there and I see some friends, and, you know, it's a kiss on this side and a kiss on this side of the cheek, right? But what you never did is you never kissed your teacher first. You always kissed your fellow peers first, your other students first. You waited until the end to kiss the teacher because then it showed great respect that you saved him for last kind of separated from your peers. If you kiss them first, it's an insult because in essence what you're saying is I'm an equal to you. So when Judas comes and he kisses Jesus in front of everybody, it's as though he's saying, you know what, I used to think you're the Messiah, I don't anymore, I see you as an equal, and to me you're worth 30 pieces of silver. And pastor, you think there's a little bit of Judas in me? Yeah, I do. Because you've got to understand the gravity, the insidious nature of sin in all of us. So let me tell you a little parable that Tim Keller tells. I, I assume it's original to him. He says, I want you to imagine for a moment a single woman adopts a baby boy. Now she's a single mom. 
She adopts this child and she sacrifices for the child. She serves the child. She loves the child. And she never regrets it. She never complains about it. It's her joy to do this. And the child becomes a young man. He's about to go to college. And so she takes him to college and she opens an account up in a local bank in the town he's going to school. And she deposits a year's worth of tuition as well as some more money for his personal kinds of needs. And says goodbye to him. Halfway through his freshman year, he drops out of school and drains the account. And she doesn't hear from him for seven months. Then one day, the doorbell rings and she opens the door and he's standing there and he grabs her by the shoulders and he kisses her on the cheek and he walks into the house and he says, Mom, the bank account is empty. Could you put more money in it? Now, when he kissed his mom, was that a kiss of love? Of course not. That was the kind of kiss that says, oh, I'm kissing you because I need something from you. Would you do this for me? We do the same thing to God. How many times have you or I prayed something like this to God? God, if you'll do this, I'll do that. God, I need your help right now with my finances. If you'll just show up with my job, with a raise, then I'm going to give X amount away. God, if you let me win that lottery, I've had people tell me this, if you let me win that lottery, I'm going to give, you know, half of it to, to your work. God, if you work my marriage problems out, I'll start doing this. God, I promise to go to church more. God, I promise to read more. God, I promise to pray more. And I've known people who've said that. God came through... And for about two weeks, they were really good. And they just went right back the way it was. It's like a kiss. It's like, I'm going to kiss you because I need something. If all God did for us was to die on the cross for our sins, that is more than enough, don't you think? But that's our nature. That's sin. So how do we get out of the shadowlands? How do we get liberated from eternal darkness? How do I, how do I live through difficulties and, and, and not mock God and, and not try to bargain with God? How do I trust God? Well, let's look at the passage of Scripture. Look at verse 39. It says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. By the way, there's a sermon right there in that sentence, and I won't give you that whole sermon, but it's the cure to temptation. Jesus says to his followers, pray so you don't fall into temptation, so you don't run, so you don't get confused. Pray. And they fell asleep. Next time you're tempted, pray, and you won't give in to temptation. Like, so the next time you're at the local grocery store and you're tempted by half a gallon of Haagen-Dazs, all right, just start to pray. And while you're praying, you won't be thinking about the Haagen-Dazs. You won't reach into it unless you pray with your eyes open or something, all right? You get what I'm talking about, right? It's going to get heavy. Watch this, verse 41. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup. What cup is he talking about? The cup of God's wrath that should be poured out on you and me. He's going to be poured out on his son. 
Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Why? And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. You know, medical professionals tell us that you can be so stressed, so completely stressed that your capillaries leak blood, it mingles with your sweat, and you can sweat blood. We get a better picture of this, though, back in Mark chapter 14. I want you to turn there for a moment. Mark chapter 14 gives us just a little bit more information in, in what Jesus is saying to them, or, or saying in the garden there. In Mark chapter 14, verse 34, Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Well, I was reading this, one of the scholars I read said the Greek that's used there actually is, my soul is astonished. I'm astonished of what this is doing to me. I feel like I could die right now. Now, is Jesus a coward? Because other men and women have faced death over the centuries and faced it bravely. No, I'm, no, he's not looking forward to death. But remember I said, remember he said, take this cup from me? What Jesus is dealing with is the fact that all the ugliness of our sins is about to be laid on him. All my personal darkness and your darkness, the darkness of this world, evil is about to be laid over him. And you know, sin always destroys our relationship with God. It separates us from God. Sin is about to damage the relationship of the Father and the Son. Never before, ever in eternity has this happened. That's why when Jesus prays out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's that moment in time when God literally abandons his son as he absorbs on himself all of our sin and evil. You and I, we can't comprehend that. I have a hard time just dealing with my own issues, let alone collecting the issues of every human being who's ever lived. Can't even imagine that. That's why the angel shows up. But listen, think about this for a moment. When the angel shows up in verse 43 and strengthens him, why does the angel strengthen him? The angel strengthens him. Remember Mark said he's about, he feels like he could die. The angel strengthens him so he can make it to the cross to die. What we want to read is that the angel strengthened him so he could avoid the cross. So he could recover. You know, it's like God is saying, you can't die now. So I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you some strength so you can make it to Calvary, so you can die for the sins of the world. It's my sacrificial lamb for Dale and for each one of you. Now that is amazing love, isn't it? And then we get to Luke chapter 23 and look at the scene. Verse 44. It was now about noon, and darkness, some kind of an eclipse, came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. That's three hours of darkness. For the, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. At that moment, the darkness ended, and the eclipse passed, and the sun shined, and the sky was blue. 
You see that very environmental, physical darkness, I think is a huge picture of spiritual darkness. And in those three hours, it's as though Jesus has all our darkness, the accumulated darkness of the world, has it all settled on him. And he, it's as though he takes it to himself and drags it all to hell for us so that we can experience the eternal light of salvation. You can't make that up. This isn't a myth. It's true. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? And so I don't have to struggle with eternal darkness because Jesus has died for my sins. And someday, I am going to pass through those clouds into his eternal presence. It'll be absolutely amazing. And even now, when I go through the shadowlands, and we all do, physical, financial, emotional, relational, whatever they are, when I go through the shadowlands and the clouds are covering me up with all kinds of discouragement and grief, by faith, because I know what Christ did, by faith, I pierce through the clouds. And I believe and I know that God is still there. And God can take the worst things in my life and use it toward good, though I may never understand it until I get to heaven. God is still there. So, um, last week, I got a phone call. And I saw my phone buzz and it showed the name on the phone. It was a week ago Wednesday night and, and I just had a really bad feeling in the pit of my stomach. Because I don't hear from this person very often and I thought, this person knows somebody that I know and I think that's why they're calling me. And sure enough, it was. And John's voice on the other end of the phone said, Dale, I hate to tell you this, but Jack died. I don't know, you probably have forgotten, but at one time I told you the story about Jack. Jack was my neighbor who I didn't like and who didn't like me. And Jack became one of my dearest friends, and truly like an uncle to my children when we lived out in California. Jack had been through the Vietnam War. Jack was as tough and as rough as a person you could meet, hung around motorcycle gangs. I mean, what a character. But when he came to know faith in Jesus Christ, it was an amazing change in his life. And I just sat there and I, and I just wept. Because Jack, for years, would call me every week. But he had a lot of physical issues, and this last year of his life, he could just barely talk, and when he talked, he had a hard time making sense. He'd had so many strokes and so many issues happen to him. But you know, once I got past the, you know, that, that initial shock, I just suddenly realized, man, Jack just pierced through the clouds. And now he's in eternity with God. And everything's making sense. And he's dancing before his creator. What does it mean to you that Jesus conquered death? Let's pray.
Father, we're very thankful for yourself. We're thankful for your love for us. We're thankful for your mercy and your grace. Lord, the temptation for us is to just rush through this season and move on to the next season. And we don't want to do that, Lord. We'd like to just pause for a moment. Because this message, Lord, is, moves beyond just two points or three things we should do. It is really the drama of your love for us. And God, it leaves us in awe. It's something we cannot fully comprehend. And so sometimes, because we can't comprehend it, Father, we confess to you that we just, we ignore it. We're sorry for that. In these next few moments, I just want you to let the profoundness of what Christ did for you and me, that drama in the garden, the drama on the cross, just let it settle over you. Be still before him. Confess you've mocked him. Confess you've tried to bargain with him if you need to. Repent. Be filled with thanksgiving. Ask him to capture mind and heart with his truth. Let me just be still. Be still.